Welcome to Soho Bites, a Soho on Screen podcast. I'm Jingan Young, a writer and researcher of London Soho in post-war British cinema. In each episode, I invite a special guest on to talk about their favorite Soho film. And for this episode, I had the pleasure of talking to Melanie Williams of the University of East Anglia about a forgotten 1960s gem, The World Ten Times Over. The BFI calls Wolfrilla's rich acerbic feature a film that quietly subverted prevailing censorship, hinting at British cinema's first lesbian relationship. Um, so I'm uh, Melanie Williams. I teach film at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, and we're at the Soho Curzon. I'm here to talk about The World Ten Times Over, which is a British film from 1963, starring Sylvia Sims and June Ritchie. It was um, quite a while ago when I was doing research on women in post-war British cinema and this was one of the films that wasn't available on DVD and it wasn't something that had been on television so it it was difficult to get an off-air recording of it so I had to go to uh, the basement of the BFI to watch the actual kind of film on cans itself uh, which sort of tells you something about the fact that it was a sort of slightly obscure film. I'd, I'd read a few things about it, um, but it wasn't a film that was in general circulation. And in a way, that's still the case. I mean, it had a DVD release, but at the moment, it's, again, difficult to get hold of. So it's, it's still got that kind of obscurity about it, I think, and it deserves to be a much better-known film, I think. A piece of property, square and tall. A piece of property, round and tallish. And yet another piece of property. To whom do they belong? A man, of course. It's the same the world ten times over. Plenty's old man's millionaire. Just think of it. Millions and millions. Champagne for breakfast. One way or another, you're caught. Whatever you do, you're caught. you actually do for a living something to do with public relations you said public relations oh yes i want to know what is it you do for a living the world ten times over takes the headlines by the scruff of the neck to show you what it's really like with girls like billa whose world is as false as her eyelashes with Ginny, a friend who shares her flat and her follies bob was one of her follies love You never loved me. Don't kid yourself. You were something my father bought for me. Look, supposing I told you that if you walk out from me now, you'll never walk back. The world ten times over. You're just trash. The world ten times over. The private loving is here. Bob, I said I had an idea. Oh, yes. Not a captain of industry, perhaps. But uh, a girl with your background. The world ten times over for girls like these who slipped up somewhere along the path of growing up. What do they really feel? What are they really like? And if there's one thing I can't stand, it's men who beg. So why don't you just stop meddling with me? Why don't you just leave me alone? Because it was so honestly, only. You stupid idiot. 
And I suppose you'll have kind of watched Espresso Bongo with her as the kind of, you know, chorus girl in that. I mean, it's, I think she's, well, she's amazing, but I think she's amazingly versatile as well because, you know, a couple of years earlier she's in Victim, another really kind of pioneering British film, playing a kind of much more demure, um, kind of sheltered young woman, um, whereas her roles in Espresso Bongo and her similar role in the world ten times over they're much more kind of worldly glamorous kind of world weary young women in a way yeah I think she's she's terrific in the film well I, I suppose I'd, I'd read some of what um, Robert Murphy had said about the film in uh, his book on 60s British cinema and he'd grouped it together with um, a number of other films kind of putting female protagonists at their centre like The Pumpkin Eater and, and Darling as well so, so I was kind of thinking about it in that way um, and also having read about it as particularly an interview that Sylvia Sims gave about um, the kind of um, inchoate but still present suggestion of a lesbian relationship between the two best friends within it and how she'd tried to kind of shore that up and suggest that more through her costuming and the kinds of clothes that she wore she was sort of trying to suggest things that perhaps couldn't be expressed outright but could be expressed in more kind of you know subtle ways so so I was already kind of predisposed to think the film was going to be really interesting and, and, and I wasn't disappointed. Well, I mean, having just come out of a big research project looking at the 60s, obviously London and the notion of swinging London or unswinging London is absolutely central. So I feel like I have a much better knowledge of how London locations are used in various ways in British film, having spent a lot of time in the 60s. Um, when I first saw The World Ten Times Over, it was a kind of generalised sense of kind of uh, kind of Soho and bedsit land and um, rather than knowing the kind of specificities of the location but at the same time you get a really strong sense of that kind of slightly glamorous but slightly tawdry sleazy world in which they're, they're kind of you know operating. So I suppose it's got that sort of that's, uh, kind of club comedian like supper club chicken in a basket while you get told some like sort of blue jokes um but then a, a more kind of uh sinister atmosphere in a way you know this this idea that what's going on is a very thin pretext for um for prostitution and well i suppose, I suppose she's one of these i mean robert murphy talks about her as one of these kind of quixotic 60s women you know who do crazy spontaneous things and you're going to get more and more of those as you move further into the 60s and julie christian darling and you know all that kind of stuff and it's interesting as well that she her film debut is in um kind of loving where she's much more kind of stolid and she's the you know the, the the girl who gets pregnant and then has to get married and you know that kind of very traditional new wave role um and so it's, it's quite a kind of switch for her i think to be playing this um kind of free-spirited 
young kind of gadabout. Um, she does some very interesting, she does two films where she's teamed with um, Ian Hendry that are very interesting. Um, this is My Street and uh, Live Now, Pay Later, where in both she's playing this kind of sparky kind of working class women who want a bit more out of life and so in a way this her role in this as Ginny is a sort of continuation of that so so it's, it's interesting thinking about the two actresses and where they've come from because Richie is kind of a, a product of the British New Wave whereas Sims is someone who's kind of come through the studio system but is starting to be able to make slightly more interesting um, offbeat films so so and that kind of convergence in this film is is kind of interesting I think and, and it's sort of I mean there's not a lot of screen time that they spend together there, there's some but it's kind of the story's told more through kind of parallels between the two so you've got um, Billa who is uh, Sylvia Sims's character meeting up with her estranged father who's played by William Hartnell and then you've got um, Ginny, who is Jim Ritchie's character, uh, kind of having this kind of emotional tug of war with um, with her uh, her boyfriend, played by Edward Judd. And so there's this sense of women's relationships to men being kind of problematic and domineering, and and things that kind of constrain them and put them in pigeonholes that they don't necessarily want to be in. Whereas at least towards the end of the film, there's a kind of much more of a sense of genuine connection between the two women as friends than, than there has been in either of their relationships with men. So, so I think that's where the kind of lesbian subtext text um, kind of comes in. Calling it a subtext sort of suggests that it's not apparent where I think it is. And that, that ending where they're kind of waking up together the night after all this kind of drama has happened and they're kind of, you know, cuddle up together is a kind of a possible suggestion that this is the meaningful relationship that will be continued. But it's, it's, not, it's not entirely kind of clear that that's the case. Um, and that Ginny won't kind of go off again and Billa won't go somewhere else. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's very 60s in that sense of being quite a kind of ambivalent ending. I was, I was struck as well re-watching the film. Um, I mean, stylistically, it's obviously sort of drawing on kind of documentary as well as, you know, elements of British New Wave filmmaking. But I was thinking it, it's, it, it's drawing on kind of elements of the French New Wave as well and and Bergman as well in places, I think there's some... So at the moment where uh, Billa confronts Ginny after Ginny's uh, attempted suicide, there's this kind of odd break with the continuity where the, we get shots from different angles of, of kind of Billa making this accusation and it's a kind of odd moment that kind of breaks continuity and, um, and kind of draws attention to this as the as the most important relationship in in Billa's life that all she can summon up with her father is this sense of kind of world weariness and malaise and and relief when he tells her that she's trash you know finally she's kind of got him to acknowledge who she is what she does for a living and she gets the kind of reaction and, and Sims performs it so wonderfully this moment of like relief almost is like ah oh, right now you finally said it you know you know thinking about that kind of 
particular period in British cinema, that idea of a kind of um, unconventional relationship. It sort of, there are parallels with something like The Leather Boys, which is also 63, where you've got kind of best friends who may or may not be kind of attracted to each other in, in some way, or that may or may not be reciprocal. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a kind of um, parallel. But, but I think also thinking about 1963 as a kind of significant year in British culture with kind of Beatlemania and the Perfumer Affair, but also in British cinema, it's also the year that The Servant is released. And, and that idea of a kind of, a, a, a kind of demi-monde, this idea of, you know, a kind of respectable world and then another world that's kind of, um, kind of more morally ambiguous, I think. Um, and a kind of odd homoerotic, homosocial relationship between the, the two men and the master and servant in that. I mean, it's not a straightforward parallel with, um, with the world ten times over, but they're kind of swimming in the same kind of water that we're getting into British films that are you know, much more kind of ambivalent in their treatment of certain characters and situations. It, it's, it's a, in some ways, it's quite a kind of typical 50s film and, and television career in, in the British context. Um, but he, I mean, he makes a couple of films that have Soho settings, doesn't he? So I, th I think there's a, there's a kind of interest interested in the and, and I think he directs it um, really effectively it's, it's someone who's got a a good eye for for storytelling I mean even the moments at the beginning of the film where we're introduced to uh, the, the kind of setting the the apartment that the two women share and this kind of tracking around the the glamour shots and the the teddies and the and the dollies that are all kind of decorating this quite flouncy feminized setting it's very it's very nicely done we get a sense of the the world in which they're working before we even meet them properly it's because we're surveying kind of vast swathes of film production throughout the decade um, this film doesn't kind of feature um, all that prominently but at the same time I think it's Part of that, um, part of that movement into new kinds of cinema, and an interest in um, London locations. That you know, often when we look at the historiography of British film in the 60s, there's this idea that it's all new wave and all northern, and then all of a sudden it's all London and all swinging. And actually, there are lots and lots of films that complicate that binary and and this is a is a good example of that yeah I mean, billy liar is also 63 and again it's one of those sort of pivotal films um that sort of you get the sense of this things shifting and the folk the, the dominant focus shifting to you know what life billy might have had in London rather than the life that he goes back to um, but that idea of fantasy life that you that you talked about um, is also in the world ten times over that you know that it gets its title from this childhood fantasy that that, um, that Ginny has of kind of pretending that she's the queen of the world ten times over and and hiding in a hole in the garden and then that dream being kind of interrupted by something banal like being called in for, for tea 
so this yeah this idea of kind of ambition and and dreams and fantasies that may or may not be fulfilled I think is is quite a powerful one it's a really interesting film I, I find the the kind of interactions between Sylvia Sims and William Hartnell as kind of father and daughter and you know finding out that she comes from this quite middle class background that her father's a school teacher and who gets her tickets to go and see Coriolanus and she's like I don't want to see it <laughs> Shakespeare's boring I've never liked it um, this sort of dreadful impasse this impasse between between them the inability to communicate that is that is both the fault of both of them I think the way the film unpacks that is really brilliantly handled um, this sense of a kind of class division of a gender division of a generation gap opening up and and this sort of quite someone who likes to think of themselves as quite liberal being kind of disgusted by the path that his daughter's life has has taken but but her frustration with him not being worried about her or interested in her but more about how that then reflects upon him I mean they're, they're both really good in those scenes and I think you know on the strength of that alone the film deserves kind of more more of a reputation than it has I'm so sorry I kept you, my dear. I'm afraid we're a bit late. We'd better get a taxi, I suppose. Dad? Hmm? I don't want to go. What do you mean? I don't want to go. But I've got the tickets. Well, you go. Have a ball. Sabira! For heaven's sake, what's got into you? Nothing. I just don't happen to enjoy Shakespeare. But well, you've been absurd. You've well, always... I've always hated Shakespeare. You can have him bored, as far as I'm concerned. Really, Sibylla, sometimes, sometimes I don't think I know you. No, Dad, you don't. How could you? Come up once in the blue moon to give your little girl a treat. You pay your conscience money. Conscience money? Shakespeare at the old Vic Jam tart Sibylla. City. Anything so long as we don't have Please, to talk. Please, Sibylla. Well, today it's going to be different. Today you're going to learn something about now, Sibylla, me. Sibylla, listen. Today you're going to take me home. So, uh, this is it. Yes, Dad. This is it. Oh, and uh, you said something about uh, sharing with someone. A girl, Dad. Ah, yes, of course, that's her, Virginia. We work together. Very charming. I think she's going to leave, though. Oh, dear, I am sorry. She's going to work... Oh, what do you say? Uh, live in sin? Well, of course, uh, moral standards are changing greatly. Middle East Petroleum, he was very keen. If I beg I my mean, cards, what I... did you say this girl's name was? Virginia? Virginia, yes, Dad. Now, this one... As a matter of fact, a I often sweetie, wondered but whether Mary, you the best were... ones always are, aren't they? I mean, I often wondered whether there was anyone in your life, Sibylla. Nice boy, serious. Dad, 
Before I was born, did you and Mum want a boy? Well, not what you call wanted, but we, uh, that is, your mother and I sort of assumed, I suppose. I would be a boy. Very inconvenient for you. Unfortunately, your mother died when you were still quite a baby. And babies grow up, don't they? Oh, now, Sibylla, I, I, I didn't mean This to... one, he was a film producer. This one was a layabout, useless, but fun. Please, listen, Sibylla. This one was in textiles. It... Fat hands, fat lips, and a very fat... Please, body. Sibylla. This one was a university professor. A real, live university professor. I mean, what is it you actually do for a living? Something to do with public relations, you said? Public relations! Oh, and these are our badges of office. When I've been a particularly good girl and I've helped push through a particularly good deal, I get a special award. Something soft, something feminine, something sexy. Sibylla, I want to know, what is it you do for a living? I had to drag that question out of you, didn't I? But I wonder if it's one of those films that was had experienced difficulties in exhibition because of the, the kind of film crisis around that time, which meant that lots of films, like The Leather Boys, were, were kind of held up and didn't get um, kind of proper exhibition until like a year later. And there's, a, there's a kind of real bottleneck um, around that time in British films not being able to kind of get released. Um, and I wonder if the film may have been one of those um, but I mean it's it's marketed in a way that's kind of making the most of the slightly salacious appeal of the subject matter but not not kind of overly lurid I suppose when it's retitled is it Pussycat Alley for for um for the states that's that's kind of marketing it in a slightly more kind of obvious way whereas this it feels like a more of a kind of even the title being based on a sort of childhood fantasy it's quite um Quite art housey in a way. I think Wolf Riller have kind of aspirations in that direction, and and this film's got that kind of feel. And she's got that kind of big chunky pullover with the with the roll neck as well, and and the and the boots that she wears. So it's yeah, it's, it's kind of and yeah, she's dressed quite differently for work. You know, when she's kind of doing a party hostessing thing, um, she kind of dresses up in an entirely different way and. And at the beginning of the film, you've got that bit where she's kind of come in from work and she's taking her makeup off and kind of looking at her face. And there's a lot of women kind of scrutinising their own appearance in, in this film, as though they kind of know that that's their chief kind of value. There's a great, um, it's a great moment. Well, I don't know if it's a great moment. There's a, another film from around the same time called Bitter Harvest, which has um, Janet Monroe playing uh, a good time girl. She's this kind of rural Welsh girl who ends up uh, being in London and, uh, and she's living the life of a party girl. And the film opens with her coming in in the same way that Billa does in World Ten Times Over and kind of taking off all her finery and then kind of trashing her flat and then we go into a flashback and we kind of find out how she got into that situation and, and it's 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 interesting because it's in colour so it's kind of diff slightly different uh, kind of aesthetics and it's possibly a bit more judgmental in the way that it approaches that character I mean it's certainly sympathetic but the, some of the ambiguity and the, the kind of irony that you get a bit more in the, the women's performances in, um, 
in World Ten Times Over and is is much more of a kind of moral tale, even though Janet Monroe's brilliant in it. She's you know it's a wonderful performance and that's another film that you know ought to be ought to be kind of better known than it is. listening to Soho Bites, a Soho on Screen podcast. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud and you can follow my research at Soho on Screen. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>